God, it's my prayer today that you would meet each of us where we are, including myself, that you would speak your truth, speak your word to us, and that throughout it, as we begin to see things maybe that we need to change in our life and to submit to you, that we would know that even in the midst of our fallenness and our sin, that you are just head over heels in love with us, right as we are today. And I pray that that would just um, really be the foundation for today, that as we begin to think about our lives and as we begin to look at the transformation that needs to happen, that we would sit right in the middle of the love that you offer us. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Greg mentioned, I'm here for a seminary class this week, and I've been a seminary student for a couple of years now, and actually feel like I'll be a seminary student for the rest of my life at the rate I'm going, that I'm always interested to hear what seminaries are doing. There's some creative stuff going on out there. Bethel's doing this uh, program with Willow Creek, so that's something new and creative, trying a different tack. And I've been doing some research in other seminaries and looking at their web- other seminaries and looking at their websites and their catalogs, and so I wanted to share a little bit about that with you today. I found some interesting classes that are offered in seminaries throughout the United States. I found one seminary that offers a course about that with you today. I found some interesting classes that are offered in seminaries throughout the United States. I found one seminary that offers a course in wilderness camping. I found several seminaries who offer classes called hymnology, where you get to study the old hymns that go over real big in a place like this. There's a class at one place called the pastor's home. I don't know if that was decorating tips or what. One called Hamartiology and Soteriology, whatever that is. Studies in the Hagiographa, whatever that is. Post-colonial theory in the Bible, whatever that is. I like this one called Eating and Drinking with Jesus. I thought that sounded kind of fun. <laughs> and finally, my favorite one was called Reading the Audience. I think I need a class tonight, although at Woodland Hills it wouldn't work because I can't see anyone in this building. Reading the audience. Now the mission of most of these seminaries goes something like to prepare men and women to serve in the church, to lead in the church. And I'm kind of wondering what most of these classes have to do with that mission statement. Some of them seem a little oddball. And I think seminaries today would do well to look back at what I think is the very first seminary, and that was the seminary that Jesus ran. By today's standards, the seminary wasn't very successful. There were only 12 students. They didn't come with impressive undergraduate credentials. They didn't have a lot of money. None of them went on to become high-paid ministers at the end. But he had a very different set of classes than the ones I just mentioned to you, than the ones that you see in most seminary catalogs. He had classes in healing, Classes in loving others well, classes in confronting evil, doing miracles, resolving conflict, casting out demons, very practical classes. His mission with his students was very much the same as the seminaries that we see today. His mission was to train these 12 men to become leaders in his church. And the cool thing is that his mission being the same as ours, resulted in the world being changed because 11 students went on to do what he taught them to do. His original graduating class changed the world. I think seminaries should take a close look at what Jesus taught at his seminary. Because in all of the websites and all of the catalogs that I've looked at, I've never seen a hint 
of what I think was one of the major topics that Jesus taught his students. Jesus taught his students about servanthood. He taught them about it and he modeled it. And it was clearly a priority for him. You don't have to read very far at all in the New Testament to prove this. As I was reading through a concordance, I know a lot of you do that, read through concordances. In my spare time, I like to do that. That in the dictionary. I actually found in the New Testament alone, there are 19 times when Jesus is referred to as a servant. 72 times when the followers of Jesus are either called servants or told to serve. That's 91 times through the books of the New Testament that we find the theme of servanthood being applied to Jesus and those in his kingdom. Now here's the weird thing for me. The word leader or lead is used only three times in the entire New Testament to refer to Jesus. Three. Five times the words leader or lead are used to refer to leadership in the church. Ninety-one times for servanthood, eight times for leadership. Now this is a huge concern to me. Most of you may be saying, oh, that's interesting statistics, yada, yada. This is why it's a concern to me, because I quit my job here, sold my house, packed up my family, and moved to Chicago in January so that I could do an internship in leadership development, so that I could get a master's degree in transformational leadership. It's a problem for me when I open up the Bible and realize Jesus didn't really talk a whole lot about leadership. I should be doing a master's degree in servanthood, because that's what Jesus talked about. The way that we 21st century Christians think of leadership in the church is just not to be found in the New Testament. Matthew 20, Jesus says, Whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Mark 10, Whoever wants to be great must be a servant. 1 Peter, Serve each other faithfully. This is what we're told to do. We're told to serve. Now, how many of you have ever heard the term servant leadership? Servant leadership was a book written by Robert Greenleaf a few decades ago. It's been applied to businesses and churches. And his basic premise is that we need to, instead of thinking of ourselves as climbing the ladder, getting to the top of the pyramid and being in charge of people, we need to instead serve those people who work for us and enable them to do their jobs better. But I have a real problem with that phrase, and in fact it's bugging me recently, because I've realized that we focus, when we talk about servant leadership, we think about leadership. The servant word is really small, and the leadership word is really big. But when Jesus spoke about it, the leadership word was really small, and the servant word was really big. He was all about servanthood. I don't think servant leadership really gets to the heart of what we're called to do. If you picture yourself leading in any context, a family, a group, a team, a soccer club of second grade boys, a church, if you ask the question, how do I servant lead this group, you come to a very different answer than if you ask the question, how do I serve this church, this family, this group. Because when you ask how you servant lead, you tend to still think you're in charge. It tends to still be about you. And you come to answers like, well, I need to empower them. Well, I need to encourage them. Well, I need to be nice to them. And those are all good things. But when you ask the question, how do I serve them, they become the focus. And the answer is, 
I get down on my knees and I wash their feet. And that's very different. I don't think this is a minor adjustment in thinking. I think it's a major. For me, it's major. I've been in the church my whole life, and I didn't understand servanthood. I'm 35 years old now, not yet middle-aged. And I'm just now beginning to understand that one of the primary messages of Jesus for his seminary students and for us today was about serving. Just about serving. This is what he has to say. If you have your Bible with you, take a look in Matthew 20, and we'll read a few verses. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples who kind of want to be in charge of stuff. And I know, look at that. I, it wasn't up there, the first service. You guys are magical. You're waving. We're going to read Matthew 20, 25b to 28. And I'd like you to look at this as though you've never seen it before. As though this is the first time. Because I read this verse my whole life and I never understood it. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is not really talking about leadership here at all. He's talking about servanthood. He's talking about what he wants his disciples to look like as they wander around this planet, as they interact with people. Now, this may sound extreme to some of you, like, oh, we don't need leaders in the church. We can all just kind of wander around and hope something gets done. And I'm not saying that. I believe that we need leaders. But I'm going to swing to the other end of the pendulum today. I'm going to be extreme in the other direction because there are just far too many church leaders out there who think that leadership is about position and power and being in charge of stuff and they don't understand that leadership in the kingdom of God is about serving, is about washing feet, is about putting yourself at the bottom of the totem pole. We've got to have a correction here. We need a correction so that we begin to see leadership in the kingdom of God as a way to serve rather than as a way to be in charge. I'm going to say that again. We need a major correction in the church today so that we see leadership as a way to serve in God's kingdom rather than to be in charge of God's kingdom. I cannot believe how many years I read the words of Jesus and still did not understand it. In 21st century America, it's just the thing to be an individual, to be in charge, to want power and authority, to have it be all about me. There's arrogance and self-interest. And we read our Bible and we forget to really look at the words that, where Jesus said, Hey, I'm the servant of all. I'm the great shepherd. Jesus never said, Worship me. Jesus never said, serve me. Jesus went through his life serving others, healing, casting out demons, caring for the sick, weeping with people, shepherding the sheep. And here he is, the king of the universe, the God of creation, our creator, our king, who will reign in eternity, and he got down and washed feet, but I think I'm too good to do that. I have a terrible confession about this. When I moved to, I went to Willow Creek to learn about leadership, to study leadership, to get my degree in leadership. So I get down there, and I've, I've been praying that God would really teach me about humility and also teach me about leadership. Not realizing, well, I thought those were different things, but it turns out they're very much the same. 
So I get down there, and I was interning with someone on the management team, and his name is Russ Robinson, and I started getting introduced to people as this is Russ's intern. So I'd been there about a month, and I got a phone call from someone saying, yeah, you're Russ's intern, right? I need to make an appointment with him. And I was just appalled, like, excuse me, I do not make appointments for people. And I just realized this is what humility is about. Here's Jesus, who knows that he's not too good to wash feet. And then here's me, and I think I'm too good to get out a daytimer and make an appointment for someone. And it was just this major like, paradigm shift for me where I realized, you know what? There's nothing that I'm too good to do. If Jesus can wash the feet of people who had been walking along a dusty road and probably hadn't had a bath in a while, then I can probably learn to serve as well. But we've got to make this practical because each of us has to walk out of here and determine what we're going to do with the words of Jesus when he tells us to serve one another. And God has obviously really been challenging me in this area. I mean, if I had to be honest with you, and maybe some of you would agree, I would rather give every person in this room $100 than get down and wash your feet. I'd rather take out a second mortgage on my house and hand all of you a $100 bill than actually get down and wash your feet. I don't want to do that. But you know what? Jesus wants me to do that. So I've got a ways to go. And I figured as long as he's dragging me along in this journey, I could take you with me. It's not that I'm unwilling to serve. Most of you are not sitting there saying, I'm not going to serve. I'm just going to completely ignore those commands. The problem is that we want to serve when we want to serve, who we want to serve, and the way we want to serve. When Jesus started challenging me about this, I'm like, yeah, I'll serve. In fact, I'd like to serve the world. I would like to be the queen of servanthood. I would like to be the queen of humility. And as I'm praying and saying, God, I don't know how to become a servant. What do I do? This is what he said to me. Serve your family. And I went, oh, man, I'm going to be on TV if I'm just serving my family. I want to be the queen of servanthood. This is not a small step for me. He asked me to serve my family, and so I've been trying to be obedient. Man, I am bad at it. It's one step at a time. I I literally will pray, okay, God, help me today to see it. Because it's not even that I won't do it. I don't even notice this. (laughs) So I've got that first step to take, and maybe some of you are with me, just to even notice the need. So last month, we're eating at a fast food restaurant, my family, Dave and Connor and Hadley and I, and I noticed that Dave had run out of water. And I thought... I can do this. So I said to him, hey, Dave, do you need some more water? And my husband, who knows me well, said, why were you going over there? (laughs) And I said, yes. And I took his water cup and I went over and I filled it up with water. I'm so, I'm the queen of humility right now. (laughs) So I gave him this water and, of course, he's looking at me like, gee, I wonder what drugs she's on because this is completely out of the ordinary. But here was the lesson in that for me that day. Five minutes later, my son Connor, who's 11, noticed that I didn't have any water. We didn't have any conversation about the water thing. I just got the water, filled it up, and put it back 
Dave looked at me funny and said, thanks. That was the whole thing. Connor said to me, Mom, can I get you some water? And I said, sure. And he got up and he went over and filled up my water and came back and put the water down. And I thought, there is power, transforming power in servanthood. That was just a little thing. And my son saw something that looked like something he was supposed to do, that looked like Jesus, just a little thing. And he took it on himself to follow that example. And now I'm hoping that I have another 11 years with him to do a better job of showing him how Jesus would behave if he was in our family. I want to talk about a couple of things that servanthood is not before we go too far. Because servanthood is not a popular thing. We don't talk about it a lot today. It's not taught about. Nobody models it hardly. And so when we think about servanthood, we can get some kind of skewed ideas of what it's about. So I want to correct a few of those things. And then I'm going to talk for a minute about what servanthood is. And then I'm going to give you some jumping off points. How can you get started on a journey to become a servant person? The first thing, servanthood is not a way to get ahead. I don't know about you, but I used to read those verses in Matthew and think, okay, whoever wants to be great, they just have to serve. So I'll go for a while and I can serve, and then I'll get promoted to be great, and then I don't have to serve anymore. And that is just a really bad way to interpret those verses. And that's a wrong motivation. Because what those verses are really saying is, if you're great, then you'll be a servant. That is the definition of a great person in the kingdom of God. If you want to be first of all, then you'll be a slave. Because the definition in the kingdom of God of a person who is first is a person who serves. And we have this weird idea that we can get promoted out of servanthood. When the real message, 91 times all through the New Testament, is that the life of a follower of Jesus is about servanthood from beginning to end. When you serve, you serve until you die. You don't get promoted out of it. It's not a way to get ahead. We don't give in service so that we can gain greatness. We give in service because that's what greatness looks like. And Jesus modeled that better than anyone. So we have to be clear that servanthood is not a strategy for getting ahead. That's a wrong motivation. Second thing it's not is an excuse to be a doormat. And I want us to take this very seriously today because there are people walking around who have the opposite problem I do. I'm, you know, arrogant sometimes. Other people have the problem, really, where they're, they don't have any confidence in themselves, where they've allowed themselves to be a doormat. They don't have any boundaries. And so some of those people will walk out of here even more unhealthy if you don't understand that servanthood is not about being a doormat. A person who chooses to serve is never a doormat. And here's why. Because you can choose to serve a person or you can choose to serve a person's dysfunction. And we need to go back to Jesus to really understand this. Jesus went to his 12 disciples who he'd spent the last few years with and who he loved and was in relationship with and he got down on his knees and he washed their feet. On the other hand, he interacted with scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders. And those people were arrogant and self-righteous and condemning. And Jesus never washed their feet. He also didn't do a lot of the things they asked him to do and he didn't answer their questions. Because that would not have been service. That would have been a disservice to them because he actually would have been serving their dysfunction, their pride and their arrogance. 
And that happens, especially in my parents' generation, in their marriages. So often the wife is the doormat, and they think it's servanthood. And it's not servanthood because what they've done is enabled their husbands to not do a doggone thing. That's not serving the person. That's serving the dysfunction. And we have to understand the difference. A choice to serve will actually free us from the bondage of the world's values if we understand that it's about serving the person and not enabling their dysfunction. So we need to be clear about those two things that servanthood is not. It's not a way to get ahead. And it's not an excuse to be a doormat. Well, then what is it? What is servanthood? When we can't look around and see it in action in very many places, it's hard to put our finger on that. So I'm just going to talk about a couple of things. First of all, we need to be clear that it's a command. Jesus told us to serve. Matthew 4.10, Worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. Galatians 5.13, Through love become slaves to one another. And this is how disciples behave. This is how followers of Jesus behave. This is how leaders in the church behave. They're servants because they're commanded to be servants. And anytime Jesus gives us a command, we have a choice of whether to obey or to ignore it. And I think I've spent most of my 35 years just kind of ignoring it. It didn't seem popular. It didn't seem easy. It wasn't readily understandable. And so I just kind of ignored it. And I, when I stand before God at the end of time, I'm going to have to answer to him for how well I obeyed this command. And all of us are. There's a command of Jesus from God to serve one another, to serve the Lord our God. And we have to do something with that. Besides being a command, it's also a lifestyle to aspire to. We have to begin to act like servants first, with the hope that through our actions we will eventually become servants. Now this is my deal. i got a long way to go on this. I look at Jesus washing feet and I think, wow, I wish I could be that kind of person. I look at Mother Teresa and the service she did to the poor and ailing people in India, and I think, how do I do that? And the answer is you do it one step at a time. Mother Teresa said, I belong to Jesus. He must have the right to use me without consulting me. And sometimes I look at it and I say, okay, there's Mother Teresa. Jesus, use me. You don't have to consult me. I'll use you anywhere. I'll I'll be used anywhere. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I look at her, and then I look at me, and I'm way over here going, I want to be the queen of servanthood. Put me on television and I'll hammer a nail. And I think, how do I get over here? How do I ever get there? And what God's really been showing me as he begins this transforming work is that it is one step at a time. I have to begin to act like a servant. And over time, by the time I'm middle-aged, I will hopefully begin to live the lifestyle of a servant. Jesus must have the right to use us without consulting us. And it takes a while to get there. I have five steps that God's really shown me. They're not linear steps. These are just five different ways that you can begin to engage with a servanthood mentality. And some of these are stuff that God really told me in prayer, and others are things I've witnessed or read in books. So I'll pass along five ways that you can begin to practice the servanthood lifestyle. The first one is to make it a discipline or a spiritual practice that you do regularly. Some of you have plans for reading your Bible. We worship together as a discipline, as a spiritual practice. We pray. 
Some of us fast on a regular basis. And I want to submit to you that adding to that list of spiritual practices or ways that you put yourself in the place for God to transform you, the idea of servanthood is a first step. But the thing about servanthood is that you really need to do it, especially at the beginning, in secret. We scream for recognition. We want to do stuff that people notice and pass on the back for and give us lots of gifts for and tell us we're wonderful. But the whole deal with servanthood is that it's about the other. It's about humility. It's about submission. And so if you serve and then draw attention to yourself, you're not really getting where you need to be. We will always think up some way to draw attention to ourselves. Some way for someone to notice. And servanthood asks that we don't do that. It asks that we serve with no recognition. And the only way that's going to happen is if you're really intentional and say, today I'm going to try to do three things in secret to serve others. And I'm not going to tell anybody later. This is just going to be between me and God. And you'll begin to see God transforming you. You also begin to see God transforming those you serve, like what happened with my son Connor. And if this whole church gets to a place where everyone's doing this, this church will be transformed, and then this neighborhood will be transformed. It's a huge evangelistic tool or a way to reach people with the love of God as we begin to serve, because we're called to serve each other, we're called to serve God, we're called to serve those who are far from God. Every time we serve in secret, we crucify pride and arrogance. And I don't know how many of you are like me, but I need my pride and arrogance to be crucified on a regular basis. So first of all, make it a discipline in secret. Second, serve at home or in those relationships closest to you. Do you ever notice that it's easier to serve someone you don't know? You can kind of be the Superman servant and swoop in and do a great thing and then swoop out and not deal with the ongoing relationship or the messiness of it. And I've been trying to figure out why is that? Why would I rather, I used to take my grandma to the grocery store every couple weeks, why would I rather go serve in a nursing home and sing a few songs than take my own grandmother to the grocery store? What is that? And what I finally figured out is that those closest to us, they already know that we're not really servants and that we're kind of jerks sometimes. (laughs) And you almost feel stupid serving them (laughs) because they they know this is weird. (laughs) It's like in that restaurant, if I'd have seen an elderly person across the room that needed some more water, I could have been a superman servant. And I could have gone over and got her a cup of water and maybe even a Diet Coke. And I could have swooped back to my table. And I know that woman would have thought, that is just a great person over there. But when I get my husband a cup of water, I know he's thinking, yeah, you're still a jerk, but thanks. (laughs) So there's a part of serving those closest to us that requires humility. I cannot go be a Superman servant in my home because they know me. They know the real me. They know the transformation that needs to happen. They know the struggles. Where the person across the room, if I only have to show my good side, I can be Superman. So we need, this discipline needs to be engaged with those closest to home. And I know that's why God told me to do that. That's why he didn't tell me to go serve the universe and be queen of humility. He just told me to serve my family. That's where it begins. Third, We need to show up authentically when we're going to serve. My mom had six kids and my dad, and she'd go to the grocery store once a week and bring home a truck full of 350 bags of groceries and 28 gallons of milk. 
And all of us would kind of hide because we didn't want to help bring the groceries in. But we wanted to eat them. So when she was like almost done, then we'd all show up and say, oh, did you need help with that? You know, that's just a dumb question. And we do that all the time when we serve. Because we want to like get credit for it, but we don't really want to do it. So we wait until the very end and then we say, oh, I wish I'd have been here sooner. Did you need help? So my thing about showing up authentically is no more dumb questions. I have a good story about dumb questions. Ken Davis is a Christian comedian and he speaks at Willow Creek every once in a while. And he tells the story of getting on an airplane, walking down the aisle, sitting down in his seat, and he happened to sit down in a newspaper. And the guy in the seat next to him turned to him and said, Are you reading that? <laughs> Not kidding. Ken looks at the guy, stands up, turns the page, says, Yes, I am. <laughs> That's a dumb question, my friends. <laughs> Authentic servanthood requires that we set aside our dumb questions and show up when service is needed. It's not really about getting credit anyway. It's about actually serving. So we need to show up on grocery bag number one. We need to show up not when the house is 90% clean, but when it's just starting. I want to know how many people do this. I'm not the only person who waits until the job's almost done to offer help, right? (laughs) Okay, you don't have to admit it. Your wife or husband is nudging you anyway. We wait until too late sometimes, and then we ask dumb questions. So we've got to remember to show up authentically as servants. We also need to serve people we don't like. I realized that my list of people to serve was getting kind of short because I didn't really want to serve the people that I lived with. And I didn't really want to serve the people that I didn't like. (laughs) And I thought, well, what's that about? And the truth is that Jesus tells us to love our enemies. We're called to serve our enemies. And this is just a hard thing. Because we'd rather avoid our enemies or say bad things about our enemies. And the idea of serving them, of washing their feet, of getting down on our knees and washing their feet, is just not very appealing. And it's very countercultural. My son Connor had to move mid-school year when we moved to Chicago. He went into a new school, and that can be real hard for a kid. He's in fifth grade. And there was a little kid in his class named Justin who started picking on him right away. He didn't like his hair. He didn't like his glasses. He didn't like his backpack. He didn't like his clothes. And he was just bound and determined every day to give Connor a hard time. And Connor came finally when he got frustrated and told me about this. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'll serve that kid. (laughs) I'm going to kill that kid. But instead of saying that to Connor, I said, well, let's talk about what you can do, Connor. You can do the same thing back to him. That's one of the options. You can just ignore him and walk away. That's another option. Or you can kill him with kindness. I just wanted to say you can kill him, but the Holy Spirit led me on. And he said, well, tell me about the kill him with kindness thing. So I explained that to him. And I said, you know what, Connor, I'm going to pray for you because this is a hard thing. And you know what, there's a lot at stake right now because you have to learn that your identity is in Christ and you have to be able to let this roll off. And I don't know how it's going to go, but I'll pray for you. So a couple weeks later when I was out in California, I called home to talk to the family and Connor wanted to get on the phone right away. And he said, Mom, remember what you've been praying for me about? And I said, yeah, about Justin. He said, well, today he came in the classroom and his backpack fell open and everything fell all over the floor. And so I went over and I helped him put everything back in his backpack. And I started to cry. 
Because here's my 11-year-old son who's practicing the thing that Jesus has told us to practice in a way that I don't feel capable of doing to a person who he didn't like and who had been unkind. And it was another example of the transforming power of servanthood. Because Connor and Justin aren't best friends, but all of the teasing stopped after that. There was no more picking on him. And I thought when we're willing to get down with the basin and the towel and wash the feet of someone who bugs us, it changes them and it changes us. It changes the relationship. We learn to love them when we serve, and then we learn to like them. We need to serve people we don't like. And finally, we need to allow others to serve us. And for some of you here, this is the hardest one. It's actually an act of submission to allow someone to serve you. It's an act of humility to let someone wash your feet. Peter, Jesus' disciple, experienced this at that Last Supper when Jesus got down and washed everyone's feet. Peter said, oh, not not I, Lord. You won't do this to me. And Jesus said, I will do this to you. And Peter had to humble himself before his creator, the God of the universe, his Lord, and let him wash his feet. So those are five first steps, five ways to get rolling. First of all, we need to make it a discipline in secret. Second, we need to serve at home or those who we're closest to. Third, we need to show up authentically. No more dumb questions. We need to serve people we don't like. And we need to allow others to serve us. So I went down to Willow to learn about leadership. And I'd really been praying that God would teach me. And he answered that prayer by telling me that it's not really about leadership at all. It's about servanthood. Period. We have an upside-down kingdom here. Things are backwards. And it's hard for us to come out of our places of work and business and our families and neighborhoods and reorient ourselves to the teaching of Jesus. It's so countercultural. But, you know, it's also very safe. I found that it's very difficult to serve someone astray. It's very difficult to serve someone down the primrose path. When we serve people, we're transformed. When we serve people, we create a safe environment. When we serve people, we honor God. We show ourselves to be obedient disciples. I was reading a book recently, and the author was making the case that we are being most closely what we are created to be when we serve, when we begin to act like Jesus, when we realize that true life is found in giving our lives to others. We were created to serve. Well, about two days later, I was reading in Revelation 5.10, and it says we'll reign in the end. We will reign with God in his kingdom in the end. And I thought, I was created to serve, but I'm going to end by reigning. What's that all about? And what I realized is they're not antithetical ideas. They're two sides of the same coin. And if you read through the New Testament and through the life of Jesus with that in mind, you begin to realize that's what Jesus did. 
He was the God of the universe. He created all of us. He was all-powerful. He was a ruler of all. He was God himself. And he came down here to serve us, to heal us, to cry with us, to wash our feet, to show us love, to give his life for us. And throughout it all, he was a king. But also throughout it all, he was a servant. He perfectly manifested both. And I got excited to think, wow, in the end, when we reign with him, it's because we've learned to serve one another well. And we've learned to serve our God. That's what reigning is. And today when we serve, we're learning to reign in this upside-down kingdom. And I thought, what other kind of God would be that creative to create a universe where in the end, serving and reigning turn out to be the same thing? And I was so excited because now I have a vision for leadership. Now I understand what God meant leadership in the kingdom to be. And I'm not there yet. None of us are there yet. It's a lifelong journey. But to have a vision that to learn to serve in this lifetime results in the coolest kind of leadership in the kingdom of God in the end. And I want to challenge each of you as we go out to think of yourselves as servants in God's kingdom. And to think of yourselves as placed in your family, in your church, in your group, as a person who God put there to serve. And to think about what that would mean. It's been said that a leader is someone with a compass in their head and a magnet in their heart. But I think that a leader really in the kingdom is someone with a compass in their head and a magnet in their heart and most importantly, a towel in their hand. Let's pray. God, I just have such a desire to see this church become a place where everyone's lining up to serve. Where everyone becomes a channel through which your power works in a servanthood way. And God, I pray for every person here who has any leadership role, which is really just about everybody, leading in a family or a group or at work or in the church, that they would learn to love the people in their care so much that they desire to serve that person, serve that group. I pray for the neighborhood around us, Father. I pray that they would look into this church and see people who love one another well and who serve one another and say, I want to be a part of that upside-down place where people who lead are servants and people who serve will reign with God in the end. And that's your vision, God. And we pray together today that you would accomplish that. And it starts with individuals. So I pray that you would work in each individual's heart who's here today. Meet them where they are. Challenge them where they are. God, don't let them wriggle out of this and say, it's not me. It's not me. I don't need that. We all need it. Convict us, God. We give you permission. Bless Woodland Hills, God. And thank you for the work that you are doing here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.